Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. And it is time for Peer Pressure. My guest today is Mark Dutram. Some people know him as Mark D. His solo vehicle is called Bell Ringer. You may know him as the bassist for the Melvins for quite a large period of time. This is from a radio show that was originally aired August 3rd. 2017 and in the interview you will hear him referring to the last playlist because there is a playlist in the regular radio show if you'd like to check it out go to wfmu.org slash playlists slash shows slash 74130 I really didn't want to cut that out it may be a little bit weird because you're not hearing the music but perhaps it'll have you go and uh, and check out some of it and a lot of it is personal to him. Mark's got his uh, catalog is being picked up by Season of Mist, reissuing a lot of his stuff. And he's got a great Kiss story and a great Tom Jones story. So I do hope that you enjoy today's podcast. If the URL that I just told you is a little bit too complex, you can always go to to hear the original archive from August 3rd. You can go to wfmu.org, go to programming, drop down to advanced search, basic playlist search, and then put in the artist section, interview with Mark, and you'll come up with the playlist there also. Okay, here he is. It is time for peer pressure. Mark, are you there? Hello, I'm here. You are there. You still use the, you use the moniker Mark D, or do you use your full name? Uh, I use my I use my full name, and it's just because there's 
thousands and thousands of marquees out there, or whatever. I mean, I'm the only marquee as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um, I'm certainly the only Mark Dutram out there, so it makes me easier to find in cyberspace. And, uh, yeah, you can just call me Mark. That will be goodness. Perfect. Well, and we do know who you are. And just before we went on the air, Mark and I were talking about what life was like before the Internet and what did you do in the morning before you had emails and stuff like that. And and you did used to be, you used to call yourself Mark D, I guess, more. And the reason is because if you Google that you need to identify yourself a little bit uh, specifically. Yeah, actually, uh, the reason why I, I started using Marky to begin with was because I got tired of my name being mispronounced and misspelled. I mean, this is something that's happened my entire life, but once I started to get more of a, a profile, I think I even began to shorten it to D during the Clown Alley days and stuff, just because people were, uh, what is it? How do you pronounce it? So everybody. Most people know how to say D, so it just made it easier for everybody. Very good. And uh, it, it, it is funny because I remember I had conversation with with friends who were forming bands or whatever and like, oh, we thought of this name. It's a great name. But when you Google it, there's something else out there. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that's, a, that's one of the problems, too, now after the Internet is that Instead of things kind of getting created in a vacuum, the first thing people do is Google and see it, see it if it exists. And then they have their beautiful little dream shot down when they find out there's a, you know, band in Jacksonville called, you know, the Leaping Astronaut of Faith or whatever. Right, and, right. Uh, so the same thing happened to Bell Ringer, you know, which is funny because I formed Bell Ringer about three years ago and then somebody else. You know, we put out records, and there's a bunch of videos and stuff, and then literally about six months ago, somebody decided to form a band called Bell Ringer in, uh, somewhere in Florida. And I was thinking, wow, this must be the town that doesn't have the Internet. <laughs> I decided I wanted to, I want to go visit there and see what that town is like. Mm-hmm. So um, we did just hear your first set, so if you'd like to kind of uh, familiarize the listeners with what they were just accosted with. Okay, uh, the first song was Inner Freak, which is off of the Bell Ringer's Jettison album. That album came out on an independent label called Rock as Hell. Um, if you go to the Bell Ringer Bandcamp page, you can still buy it. Uh, it's going to be coming out in another form we can talk about. Uh, Season of Mist label is going to be reissuing my whole catalog, including the Bellwinger record. But Inner Freak was kind of a Herbie Mann tribute track. I love Herbie Mann, and it's also got kind of a early, early ZZ Top thing going on. Yes. Um, and the song we heard after that was called Empire Sands, and that was from my solo record, The Value of Decay, which came out in 2011. Uh, digitally through Southern Lord, and then also on Rock Itself from Austria. Uh, there's a few remaining copies of that also at the Mark Neutron Bandcamp site. That will be reissued by uh, Season of Mist also. 
and that tune had an amazing violin solo at the end by Darcy DeVille, a local Hoston uh, session violinist who's amazing and pulled out some South Indian Carnatic riffs for me as per my instruction uh, excellently. And then after that, we heard At the Stake, which was from the Stoner Witch album, and uh, by the Melvins. And I played guitar on that track. And then I also played guitar on the the tune Revolver that you played at the top of your set. I played the guitar solo at the end of that tune and also co-wrote it. And that brings us up to date in that set. So you're a guitar player first, is that right? Absolutely, yep. That's how I, that's my instrument. You are known as being a bass player for several Melvins records. How did you end up playing bass with them? <laughs> I still don't actually know. <laughs> I, it's, it's, I probably have to quote the first line of... Uh, of Post Office by Bukowski, which is something like it started as a mistake or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, pretty much by by the by about 93, when the Melvins were first talking to Atlantic, I'd already been working with them since 86. So I produced their first two albums, um, Louis Porch Treatment and Osma. Louis Porch was on uh, my Alchemy Records label. Yes. Mid-80s in San Francisco, and Osmo was on something else. And then a couple of years later, I think 89. And so I'd done some touring with them. So by the time, and I was actually touring with them in the U.S. when they first went to the, the meeting with Atlantic, uh, doing sound for them. And they were going through some issues and didn't really have a permanent bass player. And then... After I did that tour with them, I went back to England. They were still looking for somebody because uh, Lori wasn't working out. So then Buzz just called me up and said, hey, want to play bass? And he goes, I know you can do it. I know you're not a bass player, but I know you can do it. And, you know, obviously we've been in the studio together and we've been touring together. So uh, I said, okay, I'll try it out. You know, couldn't promise to deliver anything. Uh, particularly amazing in the bass department since I'm not a bass player. But uh, eventually I kind of found my own way into it, and um, it was fun. Oh, yeah. You certainly did find your own way into it, I would say, is a little understated. I mean, you were really with with them, and they're most important, and I don't know if it truly is their most successful range, but... um, some really great releases that you were on there. Well, thank you. I think, uh, you know, there's probably about 20 Melvins fans out there that, that are just going, I can't believe she just said that, you know. So <laughs> they, have a, they have a huge audience, and they've all got their favorite periods and incarnations or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's really more like everything else in this business is it was just more a timing thing. I mean, I, I just kind of figured that, uh, I would work with them in a variety of capacities on and off because I liked the band. And uh, Dale became really as close as brothers to me. I mean, I really loved those guys. And uh, so um, I, you know, I was, we were all equally surprised when, you know, Atlantic Records was like, sure, you know, 
to make records with you the most possibly uncommercial signing <laughs> prospect ever, you know. Um, so it was more a timing thing, and I was I was just lucky to be there at that time, and, and uh, um, it was just a moment. It was a great moment, and when you have somebody, you have an organization like Atlantic behind you, even though they weren't hugely behind uh, Melvin's. The guy who signed the Melvin's was Danny Goldberg, kind of an industry legend in his own right. And uh, I remember him at the initial, one of the initial meetings going, I'm going to be here, I'm going to look after you guys. And then once we got on the label, he was basically gone in six months. And so we were sort of thrown to the wolves of the the upper executive branch there who had no interest in, in the band whatsoever. So that part of it was unfortunate, but it was still a great experience to be on that label and, you know, do crazy things like just be walking down the hallway and there's Ahmed Hurd again, you know, in a canary yellow suit saying, hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> so that's, that sort of stuff was just kind of, wow, this is, you know, this is happening happening to me right now, and this is really cool. Nice. That was a really fun part of it. So you had your own label. I'd like to talk about Alchemy for a little bit, because I feel as if it's, sure. it was a very, very important label. I, I think the first thing that I guess I heard was the Peace Through Chemistry compilation, which, which had the Melvins on it and had your band Clown Alley on it, which really is my favorite band on that label. Um, <laughs> And and uh, what was the what was going on? Um, and had you start a label? Uh, well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I still don't know what was going on. Um, it was kind of uh, uh, slipshod and sort of insane. Um, the piece through chemistry comp that you're talking about actually came out after I was gone, oh. and. Um, it's a, you know, I mean, it's become influential, uh, obviously, in hindsight and, and when placed in perspective of a number of years passing. But uh, at the time, I mean, um, the, the sort of short version is that there was a guy called Victor Hayden in San Francisco who, who was a little bit older than me and he used to go to, he was at all the sort of good shows in town. He was a Clown Alley fan. And uh, he came up to me at a Clown Alley show and said, hey, you know, we should, we should talk. I have some money. I want to make records. And you seem like you know what you're doing. And so uh, he was kind of the money guy. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's try and make uh, records sound really good. Let's go into good studios and get bands real rehearsed up and make sure they're ready to go and go into and concentrate on fidelity and making the stuff sound really good and not just be kind of a fly-by-night thing. And he agreed with that. And so that was sort of our, uh, you know, kind of goal was to make really hi-fi-sounding crossover and extreme music-sounding records. And I set up a distribution deal with Southern in London. Mm. I. I produced a record for an Italian band called Raw Power. Oh, yeah. That, that John Loder, the guy who ran Southern, uh, asked me to do. Um, and so that sort of gave me a gateway to him. And he was interested in alchemy and 
the concepts, so we went with that, and we had a you know, distribution, which is completely important for label. And then we just started getting bands that we liked on the label, and the only contingency for having a band on the label was that I got to produce them to make sure that they didn't spend all of their money on speed or, uh, you know, gambling <laughs> or whatever bands like to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... That's what we did. We just started making records, and um, I was involved in about four records, I think. Uh, uh, Melvin's record, uh, Clown Alley record, Sacrilege, uh, Neurosis, oh, and the RKO record, so five records, uh, before the thing kind of imploded. Um, unfortunately, there was just some uh, you know, misinterpretation of events of whatever, so the thing just imploded, and that was that was unfortunate. Mm. And uh, it kind of coincided with some uh, life changes for me at the time in, in 1998. So um, I decided to leave San Francisco and move to London, and that was the end of Alchemy. And then Victor continued to put out a couple of other records, and, it, you know, he, it became contentious and, was, and remained unresolved to this day, really. Oh, and in wow. a really weird side uh, story, Victor, it, it ended up incredibly acrimoniously. And about five years ago, I was living in an apartment in downtown Austin. This was around the time that, that uh, Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, died. And Victor was actually Captain Beefheart's cousin. Victor is re- referred to as the mascara Snake somewhere in Captain Beefheart lore. Wow. And so Victor decided to have some kind of an art show in Austin. And um, he had the art show in my building. <laughs> I lived in like a live workspace in downtown Austin. And the gallery he was having his, his exhibition, that was in my building. And so the, the, the irony of that was not lost on me. And I went down there and had a couple of choice words with him. So, wow. Anyway, that's, I'm not sure how interesting that even is, but it's just cosmically very strange and weird. So now you're assigned to Season of Mist, and they're going to be reissuing your solo stuff and putting out the Bell Ringer uh, record, I guess, Jettison, and then whatever else is next. Um, what is it that that... What signs give you faith in a label after having your experience with Alchemy and then also with Atlantic? Um, well, that is an interesting question, but I mean, they're basically, you know, they're just as good as the people that are running the organization, you know. I mean, if you go to a dry cleaner and uh, your clothes come back and they're terrible and, you know, the people are not nice or you say they're going to do stuff and they don't do it, that colors your experience, and the same is true with any of these record labels. And, and the same is, is true of having any kind of partners in business or whatever. You know, you have a leap of faith, and uh, everybody... Or it's like a relationship. Everybody's on their best behavior in the beginning of the relationship, and then um, you kind of gain knowledge and information, and that colors your experience also. I can't really say. I mean, I... You know, with Alchemy, I mean, I just had a partner who kind of went off the rails. So the, so the whole thing went off the rails. And uh, with Atlantic, um, you know, that's 
that's a very different deal. I mean, that's the big multinational behemoth of a company um, that, uh, you know, the idea is that it's as good as the sum of its parts, but there's some of its parts that are better than others. I mean, when we were, uh, when the Melvins were there, the PR department, the publicity department there was incredible. We were just going, why aren't you running the whole company? <laughs> and then uh, some of the people who were in charge of the whole company just had this whole other agenda that maybe didn't include even liking music, which seems very strange, but, you know, they had their own personal uh, agenda for sending the corporate lateral, whatever corporation it would be. Um, Season of Mist is just, you know, another another experience I'm having, and uh, everybody, it's Extremely early days, but everybody that I've spoken to there is really great and, and super professional, very supportive and exciting. And so I'll take that at face value, you know, mm-hmm. so I know something else. But I fully expect it to be a, a really great experience, and it is today, so that's good. So what is exactly, like, how many releases are they reissuing? What, what, um, what pieces out of your catalog? Um, well, they're going to do my three solo records, uh, Silent Treatment, Value of Decay, and Brief Sensuality and Western Violence. They're going to do the Bell Ringer record. And then they have a bunch of individual tracks uh, that I've licensed to them in addition to um, a split that I did with Dead, actually, who I think you're going to have on. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a half a record with, with them, and so they've got that part, too. So they, they basically have about five records worth of stuff. Um, and we're in the early days uh, trying to figure out exactly what the sequencing of the releases are going to be. And, um, and some things are going to come out on CD for the first time. Some things are going to be on vinyl for the first time. And all of it is going to have good, comprehensive... Uh, digital distribution, and it's all going to be under one umbrella internationally. So that's uh, really great. Congratulations. You have a a large catalog, and what strikes me is that everything that you do is kind of far-reaching yet personal. And I, I'm, I'm wondering what your sense of life and living was growing up. Like, did you have a musical family? Were you encouraged? Um to really seek out different types of music? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like, you know, I love music. I love all different kinds of music. To answer the sort of influences growing up, I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, I was born in the U.K. originally, and so I, I spent the first maybe six years of my life there. I'm old enough to remember really what the Beatles hitting and being aware of that when I was a four-year-old or a five-year-old, incredibly enough. Mm. And uh, it was just pervasive and, and everywhere, living in a little town outside of London. I lived in a town called Pinner. And uh, so I would hear that on the radio, and I remember harassing my mother to buy me those little Beatles EPs that came out. And um, so I got those, and I just loved them. I listened to them like crazy. Hard Day's Night at a cinema alone as a five-year-old. Um, 
my mother just, it seems crazy that somebody would do this in today in this time, but <clears throat> that's the way it was back then. It was a little neighborhood cinema and Hard Day's Night was playing, and I harassed my mother to take me to see it, and she dropped me off outside the cinema and watched me walk in by myself when I was five years old. And wow. I just get this incredibly overwhelming uh, experience. You know, so I just, I, I didn't really have any idea of what that was. I just thought it was pretty much the most amazing thing I'd ever seen next to watching the Thunderbirds TV show. Um, <laughs> so that sort of just sat in there and, and, and fermented. And uh, my parents got divorced and um, my mother and stepdad, I mean, my sister moved to the the U.S., and we lived in Florida for a little bit, and I remember stuff that was on the radio then. I think uh, maybe the Beach Boys were starting to come into play, and uh, you know, maybe things like Leslie Gore were getting played on the radio. I'm a little vague on it then. Mm. Um, and then since my stepdad was in the military, we bounced over to uh, Germany and lived there for three years, and uh, we didn't have a TV and so I used to listen to the radio station a lot there. And uh, so I was starting to hear things like James Brown and the Rolling Stones and um, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears and later Beatles stuff that was starting to become popular. So uh, my stepdad played a little tiny bit of guitar, and I remember him showing me a few chords maybe around the, the the age of eight or nine or something, but nothing really uh, groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really start thinking I wanted to play the guitar seriously until I was maybe 11 or 12, um, you know, and started listening to rock music. When, I moved, when we moved back to the, moved to El Paso uh, when I was about 11 or 12 or something. I love Tom Jones. And I'd like to tell everybody out there that they should listen to more Tom Jones. I love Tom Jones, and, too. Uh, uh, yeah. I could just stop there, but I'm going to talk about Tom Jones some more. Um, Tom Jones just put out an autobiography, I think, called Over the Top and Back Again or something, which is an amazing book. So you should listen to more Tom Jones. You should buy Tom Jones' autobiography and read that. Um and the reason Tom Jones is in my in my list is because it was one of the um, very profound experiences I had as a child was um, going to see the movie Thunderball, which is why I picked that song. And uh, the, the opening title sequence of Thunderball, the, the actual title sequence, not the kind of pre-sequence, is one of the most psychedelic things you can ever see. And as a child, it just made my brain explode. And uh, pretty much every James Bond movie since Thunderball has just been an imitation of the Thunderball title sequence. The end of the Thunderball theme where Tom Jones hits that high note just made me almost jump out of my seat. And to this day, it's absolutely incredible. And one of the highlights of of, uh, my experience with the Melvins was actually recording Stoner Witch at A&M. Studios in L.A. 
And one night, really late, I was walking down walking down a hallway, leaving, and I heard Tom Jones singing. Just I heard his voice coming through double doors, completely loud. And uh, you could the doors had this glass, and you can peek in there. And I peeked in there into the room, and it was one of these kind of over overdubbing rooms, a really small room. Mm-hmm. And the engineer waved me in, and I went in there, and Tom Jones was singing. Doing a track, really? And, uh, wow! So I got to—I just peeked my head in, and I could see Tom Jones singing, and he sort of opened his eyes and he just kind of waved at me, uh. and I just kind of went, "Oh my God!" Tom Jones waved at me. Tom Jones waved at me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was completely ecstatic, and just—I couldn't think about anything else for about three or four days. At least you didn't throw your underwear at him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that was my brush with fame, and uh, it was kind of one, of one of the only times I've been really, you know, I mean, I was so freaked out I couldn't even hang out and just go, oh, you know what, I'm going to meet this guy. I just kind of ran away like a scared fan. Hmm. That's okay. That's a, that's a great story. That's wonderful. One of the listeners writes here, uh, don't know much about Mark and always loved watching him play and his bitchin' 10-gallon hat. Uh, first saw him opening for Kiss. That was, of course, with the Mel- with Melvins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did that. And um, that was kind of a strange thing. We used to sort of, uh, I mean, Buzzendale were huge Kiss fans. I was never a huge Kiss fan. But uh, one of the things that we used to, joke about in Atlantic, when we would do interviews for Atlantic that they would set up, we would make up all this uh, really just out-and-out lies about what the Melvins were going to be doing, you know, people, one of the one of the questions people always ask is, what's in store for you? And we would say things like, well, you know, Elvis Presley Enterprises has invited us to play on Elvis Weekend on a flatbed truck outside Graceland. Um <laughs> Uh, Kiss is going to put their makeup back on, and, and they want us to come out and do some dates with them. That was actually one of the lies that we would tell. And uh, strangely enough, when we were uh, um, touring with Primus, we got a call from Gene Simmons. And uh, Gene Simmons had been aware of the Melvins because of the solo records they put out. And so he called our management and said, Hey, I want to come down and play a tune with the guys. And... Uh, we heard that, we sort of thought it was a joke, but it was real. Wow. And uh, so wow. uh, when we were playing, I think, at the Palladium in L.A., uh, sure enough, Gene showed up, got out of his little, whatever he was driving, Subaru or something, and um, had his bass, and was like, hey, guys, let's play. You know, what do you want to play? <laughs> had his, had his uh, mm. flannel on, because we were a grunge band. Wow. And so we... Spent about a half an hour working at God of Thunder, I think. And then he came back and played it at the show, and Buzz and I played guitar, and Gene played bass and sang. And then, of course, a uh, couple of years after that, he actually invited us to open up, I think, seven or eight dates for Kiss, which was one of the most surreal things I've ever done in my life. I mean, it was kind of uh, very bizarre and and crazy thing to do, and, uh, you know, I can kind of, I can cross off playing with kids at the Superdome. <laughs> uh, so, 
<laughs> there you go. Uh, I don't I don't really know what to do anymore since I've done that. Right, right. And, uh, Seeing Gene Simmons get out of his Subaru is enough. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it was a Subaru. It might have been like a late model Buick or something like that. But, okay. uh, you know, he didn't roll up in a Lambo or anything and was really super, super humble. And when we were touring with them, I mean, he would uh, come into our dressing room after our set, but before theirs, in full uh, <laughs> Gene Simmons regalia, about seven foot plus tall, and stand there and go, good show, guys? And we would be going, uh-huh. And he would go, can I get you anything? <laughs> and I mean anything. <laughs> and uh, so that was, that was kind of a thrill to have that going on. Even not as a huge Kiss fan, I was going, this is happening in a room with this going on. This is wow. kind of fun and neat. So, um, oh, that is so uh, interesting. Absolute gentleman, despite his uh, reputation to us. Well, good. So, uh, that was an awesome experience to have. That's wonderful that he was respectful and, and it sounds like really kind and generous to you. That's that's super a wonder a wonderful yeah. story <laughs> i mean you know if you think about them at that point i mean i guess this was maybe their 76 we're putting the makeup back on tour was the real band with ace and peter and i mean they basically could have had anybody in the world open up for them mm-hmm. all he had to do was make the phone call to anybody he wanted and he wanted the melvins so that was uh you know super nice and, and absolutely generous move from somebody like that. Well, I think the coolest thing is is him coming into your dressing room already ready to go on stage and then asking you if you want anything. Like, just, you know, <laughs> the, just, like, like what waiter, dr- like, dresses up like that? You know, maybe he yeah. was, maybe there's going to be, like, a Kiss restaurant and, they'll, and the, the servers will dress up like Kiss. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what That's they... That's what I should have asked him for. I should have asked him for a Kiss restaurant. Yes. <laughs> oh, that 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 is funny. I noticed online that there's a lot of videos for Bell Ringer songs. You have a very large video presence on your YouTube channel. I started Bell Ringer maybe about three years ago, and so just started writing new material and eventually had enough for an album and pretty much went and recorded an album. And uh, then I was sort of thinking about how it was going to come out, and and the two people I was playing with decided they didn't want to play anymore in Bellringer, so they quit, both of them, uh, on the same day. Hmm. And so I had an album, and I was thinking, well, you know what, I don't really want to put this out with these two guys on it, so I'm just going to make videos for everything. So that's what I did, and uh, that's what there is. All those videos out there are the uh, first Bell Ringer album. And is that what led you to? Um, I've seen Bell Ringer described as a collective. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, you know, the, the model for having a band is uh, you meet some people, you have an amazing time, you all become the best of friends, and you march off into the sunset, touring and making records forever, and it's going to be amazing. Oh, yes, yes. You know, that's the that's the sort of template that's supposed to happen, but I mean it's not not any more realistic than thinking you're going to open a restaurant, for example, and everybody in the restaurant 
is going to work there forever and have it be amazing. So, yeah, I just um, saddened and sort of, you know, depressed as I was about having my band quit from one day to the next. I just kind of went, you know what, maybe this is an old-fashioned model. And uh, maybe I just need to think outside the box a little bit and just be more open to collaborating with whoever and people can come and go as they please and, um, you know, Bell Ringer will just be the live vehicle for my music. And uh, I just thought about it more in like a St. Vincent or a Nine Inch Nails type of way where there's just kind of a name and there could be revolving members under it. And I think probably even the Melvins kind of came to that that sort of conclusion um, with their history of bass players. And, yes. And, so it's not a bad, a bad sort of model to, to uh, embrace. Again, I'm going to go back to your referring to your YouTube channel again because there's, there's a wonderful collection of small, uh, short videos that uh, is your riffology series. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Because I think that they're like just beautiful and glorious. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's just a little, a little thing my wife and I did for fun. She's, a, she's an animator for real, and she's worked on some heavy-duty stuff like Waking Life, Richard Linklater movie, and uh, she's worked on a Lars von Trier wow. movie, and um, she does animation on that level, and we just had an idea to do really super concise shorts our, our original rule was it couldn't be more than two minutes, and that was the only rule. And uh, I do a riff, and she responds to it visually, or we just throw whatever we want in the, in, into the basket and see what comes out. So I've neglected it for a little bit, but I think maybe there's about 20 of them up. And, yeah, there's uh, quite a few. You can, you can get through one in about a minute and 45 seconds, so it's not too much of a commitment. Yeah, and they're, they are really, really cute. So you have your own YouTube channel. Um, and then if people want to get in, get in touch or follow your, your movements, what are the, what's the best, the best place to be looked up? Um, well, there's my website, which is markgutron.com, and that has links to uh, Facebook and Tumblr and um, SoundCloud and Bandcamp got all the links on it. Uh, then there's the, the regular old, um, uh, there's a Bell Ringer Facebook page, Bell Ringer ATX, and I just made a Mark Dutrum Facebook page two days ago. Uh, I've never had one before, and this one is just for promotional stuff. Season of Mist will be, will be sort of managing it for me. So, Mark, thank you very much for uh, and for hanging out for as long as you have. I'm and wish you a pleasant rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Woohoo! Thank you to Mark for coming on the show. Check him out, markdutrom.com. His last name is spelled D-E-U-T-R-O-M. Or check out Bellringer ATX. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in.
More on the way. Thanks to Liz Berg for handling the in-house podcast duties here at WFMU. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, rocker for life and making a difference. Yes, my Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m. for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.